0: ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors, from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service and all garage door repairs, with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving West Portland out to Hillsboro, Call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at ProLiftDoors.com Portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or ProLiftDoors.com slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we are honored to welcome Mr. Dennis Porter. Dennis and I worked together when I ran for state representative in 2020. And since then, he has gotten involved in pretty heavily in the Bitcoin community, specifically in Bitcoin policy and government relations.
1: Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Good to yeah. see you again. By the way, yeah, I know.
0: Well, we saw back you back in the political I, I scene. I saw you a couple a uh, couple weeks ago or a couple weekends ago. Yeah, we, last we,
1: weekend we met for was it lunch, quick drink, uh, but oh, before you met in the, the, the meetup. Uh, meet meet as well. There was yeah.
0: a Bitcoin meetup here in town that we that we hung out at. So
1: yeah, so I you know I've, I've got my background in politics. Uh, kind of came to a head in, when we were working together in Oregon local politics, and I took a lot of what I learned in. Jumped into the Bitcoin space. Initially, I just kind of went over there thought with the thoughts of being a podcaster, being someone that would you know tweet about Bitcoin, shit post about Bitcoin, and uh, continue to drive the conversation forward. Eventually started the show after spending you know hundreds, if not thousands of hours on things like spaces and clubhouses is where I got my start. So what's, event- the, what's the name of your... Oh, you also have podcasts. So what's
0: the name of your yeah, podcast? Yeah, my, my
1: podcast is called Smart People Shit. I also have uh, a side show called The Update for those that are uh, less interested in going on the show that has the curse words. So, some of the politicians I, well, I was gonna say, probably too late to mention that
2: we don't <laughs> swear on this show, but
1: well, I, I figured I, I knew that's what it was called. So That'll be the one curse to, word we allow today. We're gonna a, have to mark uh, this one explicit. explicit. Sorry, yeah. if you
0: got any kids listening, probably you know, turn it off trigger now, warning. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think that was the point of naming the show originally. Uh, also, didn't plan on having politicians or being a political person in the very beginning, mm-hmm. it was always just I want to be a part of the conversation. I got involved in Bitcoin in 2017 and I wanted to get into mining, wanted to get into investing into the the infrastructure and be a part of that. But uh, I put 20 Asics in my garage and that was the cap that the significant other was willing to deal with anymore was <laughs> we're uh, you know, ending the relationship. So I decided that the I would not fulfill my dreams of a, be, becoming a mass scale miner, took some years off just kind of laid low kept my eye on on bitcoin you know got into politics separately mm-hmm. from bitcoin but now this this pretty big fight that's picked up because of what's going on with the infrastructure bill recently so they tried to pass this crypto tax reporting amendment which basically was part of the infrastructure bill yes and i think it actually did exactly. pass
0: didn't it or, it did pass as part of the infrastructure bill so yeah so go ahead
1: no you're good um so basically what happened was During the infrastructure bill process, the Treasury snuck in this bill or this amendment, excuse me, that would give the ability for the government to redefine large swaths of the Bitcoin industry as brokers. And under that definition, they would have to report any sort of Customer information to the IRS, which is impossible with Bitcoin, right? Because it's it's third there's no third parties. There's
2: probably a good time to ask what is Bitcoin? Like is it (laughs) is (laughs) it's back money? (laughs) Is it a computer thing? Is it all of the
1: above? On a very basic level, the reason why Bitcoin was created is because we have a very significant problem with money, not only in this country but all over the world. For 10,000 years, human beings have been using money as a means to speed up economic activity, right? Because back in the day, you'd have to trade a, a cow for a chicken. Um, but what if you needed seeds and the uh, the chicken farmer didn't have uh, any any cows, right? So you would have to go multiple steps in order to make the transaction happen. Eventually, human beings fell on this idea of money. Most people believe it started off as a ledger. So instead of trading physical objects, you'd go in the cave and be like, okay, I owe this guy, um, one cow. And then you'd go, you know, a week later, you're like, okay, I owe him two cows. And you would keep track of things that way. But eventually, we, we started using items to, to, as a form good, of money,
2: I know. Good book on the subject is "A Cent of Money" by Niall Ferguson, a conservative economist. If any anybody's, we got to start our like rational Republican <laughs> yeah, book well, club. Yeah, well, like I was going to say, we have had,
0: I was going to say debt by, and I forget the guy's name,
2: but there um, you go. Caught oh, you on the spot there. But yeah. so, so we we've we've got money, we've got a mint, we've got a treasury, we've gotten off of the gold standard, and now in the last eight ish years, there is this thing called cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. and it's a. It's a. Uh, is it a more efficient way of managing money,
1: or? So going back, like, yeah, it's, it's the it's, opposite it's, of efficient. It's, actually, the, <laughs> <that's> the, the, <laughs> it's, it's right in line with the next part of the story when it comes to money, which is that for the ten thousand years that we've been using money, we've had this really bad problem where eventually the type of money we're using collapses or gets crushed. To the point where it becomes unusable. So, for some countries, such as those in some of the African nations during the slave trade era, what ended up happening that caused an exacerbation to the slave trade and to the to make it so much worse than it could have, should have ever been was that during that time they were using what are called glass agri beads as a form of money, because glass making was a primitive technology in in African nations at the time, and the Europeans had pretty advanced forms of glass making, so they came down and, and essentially debased their currency to nothing and used it as a way. To, to buy human beings, so not only did it uh, totally destroy those nations, but it also allowed one of the greatest evils to occur in human history, which is the you know the, the yeah, transatlantic well, slave trade.
0: Well, let's back up just a second. So, in order for it to be money, this is I think there's three three things it needs to be. It needs to be scarce. It needs to be divisible, and I. Forget what the other thing is, but it needs to be
1: portable be, and portable. highly identifiable, right? So the, the
0: issue with the beads is once you throw in modern technician technology, they're easy to make and exactly. very it's essentially that, right. easy to counterfeit. Mm-hmm. So what we as, as America did for a long time is we had the gold standard. You know, every dollar was is essentially a. You know, you could go trade it in for a a piece of gold or a piece of silver. Uh, so that was, so even though you're carrying around notes, those represented gold and silver. Now they don't represent anything. They are just the promise of the U S government to, you know, that, that you can use them for fiat to currency. repay, right. Fiat currency. The government can print as many as they want. So there's really no scarcity outside of the federal reserve and yep. the printing of money. Bitcoin, there's only 21 million of them mm-hmm. at all ever. And so it, I mean, sorry, go ahead. No, the, yeah, the um, scarcity is a very. You, you <laughs> I'll bring stop up talking.
1: No, you should interrupt me whenever you need to. It's the scarcity is a really important aspect to money. Natural money is eventually where we headed towards, which is this idea of silver or gold. So silver and gold become very popular because you couldn't quickly debase it. You had to actually physically work to bring it out of the ground, and that was a massive improvement over the types of money like beads. We use fabric um there's were all sorts of shells and rocks that we would use and eventually we we all as a human species coalesced around precious metals and they became one of the soundest forms of money for a very long time because of that eventually though uh, commerce started to speed up and it started to become international and started to become global and gold and silver had this really big problem where you it's heavy you know it's it's hard to store and it's hard to to transport And so that made it very difficult to and became a restraint on commerce itself. Which is why we in, we ended up creating paper money because it was a solution to that problem.
0: I remember reading something about how you know it wasn't just the U.S. that was denominated in gold, but other countries, and so they would, in order to settle their debts, you know, if you had you know Swiss francs and uh, German Deutschmarks and and you know, U.S. dollars, at some point it would it would imbalance themselves, and the way that they would rebalance all their ledgers is they would physically put gold bars on ships and sail them across the ocean yep. and. So the U.S. Treasury would grow or, or shrink depending on how uh, to, to fix international trade, which because you can't, it it, it it's not impossible to trade dollars for Deutsche marks, but it's you know when they're both denominated in gold, they're really just it's really gold that you want, not the other currency. Yeah. Although now, fast forward a hundred years, um, and we are just transporting dollars around the world, and. Sure. Uh, you know, China owns our debt and we own China's debt and everybody owes everybody else. And, um, so this is one of the <laughs> skipping ahead. Uh, one of the, the interesting things I think about Bitcoin is that it, you, you kind of take this entire cycle of debt and it, it becomes almost impossible to sustain. Of, you know, our world runs on debt. Mm-hmm. And I, don't know how you fix that, or like I, I don't know that Bitcoin fixes it. it. Bitcoin throws a giant wrench in our in our whole system of debt so, and repayment.
2: So how how and why is that? Well, and this kind of gets back into what Bitcoin is and how we use it.
0: So there's only 21 million Bitcoin, okay, at all ever. Um, I guess you could potentially borrow Bitcoin, but it would it wouldn't be real Bitcoin. It would be an IOU. For Bitcoin. Whereas, so I mean, the, the way that our fiscal monetary system works now, if I want to go buy a house, it's worth $50,000, you know, $500,000. And I don't it's have, like, where are you buying and it? And I don't <laughs> have, I'm thinking 50000 because that's about what Bitcoin's at right now. Um, so I was thinking 10 Bitcoin. So it's so I was, I was looking, like, yeah, right. I was looking at, I was thinking about, uh, easy math because Bitcoin's about 50000 And so I was thinking 10 Bitcoin, $500,000. I don't have $500,000 cash. <laughs> so the way or I do it Bitcoin. is I borrow from the bank. The bank is a fractional reserve system where they don't they don't need to have half a million dollars in the bank in order to loan me half a million dollars. They borrow from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve then prints money to act as collateral for this loan that I took out to buy my house. If you, all of a sudden, the, the government, the Federal Reserve, no longer has the ability to print money. If they don't have 10 Bitcoin sitting in the treasury, they can't lend it to the bank. The bank can't lend it to me and i no longer can buy that house because there's unless there's some sort of
1: so i mean you're really diving into really one of the biggest problems that we've created for ourselves in the modern economy which right. is like that i said i'm jumping way ever, ahead yeah which is that <laughs> you know we've created a situation where we debase the money at such a continuous rate and, and and we're lucky and fortunate to live in the united states where our our currency our fiat is the strongest of all mm-hmm. currencies but we created the situation where we've been slowly boiling ourselves to death like, like the frogs in the in the pot. And now what, what we've done is we've actually shattered the socioeconomic ladder in this country. And that's why things like the American dream are not possible anymore because home prices have gone up so rapidly. Because the currency itself is, is such a shamble that it's better to store your value in something like a home or in something like a fang stock. And that's also why you see this rapid increase in value with the stock market compared to the dollar. I mean, if you, if you go back, even though gold has been manipulated significantly by the paper markets, by the futures markets, uh, by central banks themselves to keep the price down. Uh, it's more, more or less, it's been demonetized to a certain extent. Uh, if you go back, though, you used to be able to buy a home. Uh, on the average person could buy a home with two to two and a half years of salary. I mean, now that's like insane. Like, th- mm-hmm. the, the, here's the issue: is that you should never have to borrow that much money to buy a home. Like, the home shouldn't be that much expensive. The home itself is a depreciating asset, right? Like, the property is really what's what's valuable, and yeah. the reason why it is. Gone up so much in value is because that's where people have begun storing their wealth. And not just, yeah. not just us, not people just from all over the planet. In. Like we have one in the United States in particular. It's a very difficult problem because what we've done is we've created one of the strongest real estate markets on the entire planet. That's defended by one of the most strongest military on the entire planet. Which means that you're not only is your property going to maintain its value, the likelihood of you maintaining your property rights is very strong as well, which is something s- super, super important, right? That's why we have the military, ultimately, is to defend our property rights. Take property rights, yeah. Although Black Lives Matter people will have an issue with that. <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of people around the world. I think this is the issue now, too, is like, we're, we're boiling the pot, and people are getting angry. And they're realizing they'll never be able to get ahead. And so they've given up. And now we're starting to see not only are they giving up, but they're starting to point fingers. And this is when you start to have revolutions that occur. And that's why we're starting to see people get really angry in this country. That's why we're starting to see riots. That's why we're starting to see groups of people say, "We, you should be giving to us this, this call for things like reparations is because... You have something and I don't and there's no way for me to get it other than to take it from you. So that's why I think to me it's so important that we do get back to some sort of a sound money standard where the average person can get ahead. The, the impact so, real quick though. So the impact real quick of, of debasing the money is not just inflating the value of these assets. You're also debasing the wages and debasing the savings of the average person to an extent where it's, it's virtually impossible for them to save for college, save for a home, or save for retirement. And that's why people have given up. And have decided I'm just going to live on a system for the rest of my life
2: so and it's interesting because i i very i myself am not a cryptocurrency or a bitcoin expert so i want to make sure that we keep this somewhat in a public policy lane of a podcast but i feel like that's an interesting thing to have hit on because there has been both on the right and the left a market increase in populism in finger pointing in anger and blaming the other guy and i think there's a lot of contributing factors we got talking about 24-hour cable news cycle at a happy hour on friday night i think that's definitely been a problem social media has definitely been a problem, but I. I think that you're absolutely right is this is one of those. It used to be the case where a person working an average job could afford an average place and you could have, you didn't need to worry about incurring all this debt in life. And now that's no longer the case. Mm The, 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 Gross amount of inflation that we've seen, uh, not just in the. I mean, certainly this past year. We're recording this at the end of the beginning of December of 2021, where we've seen inflation is six or eight percent or something this year. Well, I it's think probably this, much higher than that because which is, that's yeah, yeah. The, the,
1: the numbers that they use to to track CPI are constantly changing. the The model that they use to change is always adjusting. If you actually go back and use the model that was used originally uh, in the what 70s or 80s, the current levels of inflation are up at least. At 10%, if not at 15%. And there's companies like Shadow Stats, probably very Chapwood Index, certainly, yeah. that and there's track definitely, these sorts of things.
2: Definitely a lot of uh, inflation that's been going on. And I, to, to a pretty massive extent, but even beyond this year, it, in the past 5, 10, 20 years, especially certainly when it comes into the A, the markets and B, the real estate market. So I get to, to ask a, a public policy oriented question is if we keep seeing in your mind, if we keep seeing inflation like this and people moving and people storing value in things other than dollars, do you feel it does does that portend a continued rise in candidates like Donald Trump on the right and Bernie Sanders on the left?
1: I think that what happened what's happening right now is we're noticing that everybody is really pissed and they're pointing fingers, and it's for all the wrong reasons. Really, the ultimate reason why, Everything is broken in this country is because of the money. It's all downstream of the money. People like to say it's downstream of culture or culture is downstream of politics. But from my perspective, it's all downstream from the money. When you, when you start to break the incentive structure in society, which is that I'm going to pay you a hundred dollars to do this thing. And then three months from now, that hundred dollars goes down, it goes down to purchasing power. You're, you're it actually, it impacts you psychologically and makes you say, okay, Not only do I not want to save this money at all, I want to make sure that I'm buying other things that will go up in value. So you're always thinking of ways to protect yourself, which is actually also causing a psychological impact where not only do you need to work a job, you rationally need to have some other way to protect your wealth and grow your wealth outside of just that job. So the... The process that they've done to debase the money has also led to this, this creation of an entire investor class of people, which none of us should be worrying about investing our money. We should be able to store our value in a money that holds its value over time, which is the definition of sound money, and not have to go out in the stock market, not have to go to the real estate market, and be able to focus on our work. We should be able to focus on our work, and we should be able to focus on work that brings us the most uh, – like our – Whatever we're passionate about, what are you passionate about? You should be able to go out and pursue that, that work. Well, but as you a can't. financial
2: advisor, I'm passionate about investing. So I strongly disagree that people shouldn't <laughs> we, need to be investing Nick, their Nick money. I, but that's a whole nother conversation. Nick and I both have degrees in finance. So but the, but as
1: far as the stock like, market is concerned too, though, it's like it, if you look at it and you track it in gold, it's it's relatively flat for the most part. The reason why people feel like they are making gains on the stock market is because it's it's being compared to something that's being debased on a constant basis. Well,
0: and and yeah, this past year has been a great example of something like 40% of all dollars in existence were printed in the last 18 months. Right. Like the the money printer is legitimately out of control at this point. Um, but I was just going to go back and something you were talking about, the um, the monetary system, inflation, all that. Uh, the Ever since 1970, was it 71 or 73 when we got off the gold standard? 71. 71. Um Ever since then, the purpose... Uh, Real quick before you go on. By the
1: way, I won't say the curse word, but it's WTF happened in 1971. It's a website. Anybody that's listening should go check it out. Because you can see all the charts, like everything, economic output, GDP, uh, 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 like the individual contribution to the economic progress in the society. And like, it's just 1971, everything's like normal. And then everything just goes like this... like off the chart, so go to that website and exponential you'll. Exponential growth since it's, 1971. It's, it's yeah. crazy. Ever since we left Sound Money, and
0: the the reason, well, what they did is they they moved away from Sound Money toward a steady inflation rate. The mm-hmm. goal was two to three percent inflation rate because they they figured two to three percent is not something that people will will recognize. They won't feel it in on an annual basis, but it it, it encourages people to spend and invest. Rather than hoard, mm-hmm. and so you know you go back. They were trying to avoid what happened in you know middle medieval Europe, where people had sound money and they just locked it up in their safe forever, and then you had all your peasants that would live around the castle who would do all the work on borrowed land, and so they were, they were trying to avoid that sort of thing. So
1: there, there's two big things there. One is that
0: I'm not saying it's a good system. I'm just yeah. like
1: yeah, I mean the, yeah, for the I sake mean of it's, it's like it's like a. a a mild form of of you know stealing from your own people is okay because they're not going to complain about it. It's is essentially you know the, the argument that Keynesians make. It's like, okay, well, it's okay to rob from our own people and reallocate capital because it's going to force people to spend more money and drive the economy. And then, you know to some extent that that claim is true, but it it doesn't any more uh, uh, forgive the fact that they're robbing from their own people. And it also causes an extreme misallocation of capital, because now you're basically forcing people to spend their money, and that's why what contributes to some of these boom and bust cycles because people have been misallocating capital for so long that eventually you have these cracks that form and these problems that come about and now we've gotten into this world where every time the the the, the levy breaks instead of going okay you know nineteen seventy one We're gonna pull Voker, We're gonna just. We're gonna take the medicine, and we're gonna, you know, uh, drop in. Or we're gonna raise interest rates to the roof. We're gonna curtail uh, printing money completely. We've done the opposite of that. We've we've jacked the printing up, and we've Mm -hmm. dropped the interest rates down. We did that in two thousand and eight, and we haven't recovered from that. And now we're going into another cycle of that, and just incredible rates. Also, the um the real quick the comment about sound money standard and the the dark ages if you go back and look at at history most historians would at least partially contribute the transition from the dark ages to the first renaissance that we had well the only renaissance i think we're about to go through a second one but (laughs) the dark ages to the renaissance is partially attributed to the fact that there was sound money so from during the 1600s we had the gold florin And the gold florin was the longest standing sound money, essentially fiat, which was a a currency that was created by the nation state. And it lasted for over a hundred years. And during that period, we had some of the most incredible advances, advancements in math, science, literature, philosophy, you name it. And a lot of the stuff that was developed during that time period, a lot of the, the math and science that was, that was brought about because of that sound money period is the basis for the society that we currently live in. So, I'd be
2: curious to... So, first off, Arthur Burns was the Fed chair in 1971. He said um, Alan Greenspan or Paul Volcker, and I was just like, that doesn't sound right. Volcker. Was, was, yeah, he was later than that.
1: Volcker was the one that, that, that you, you know, he came in and jacked rates up. and He came in way
2: after that, but he wasn't there when when
1: the country went off the gold standard. Oh. But I'd,
2: I'd also be curious, because, I mean, I don't dispute was that it at ni- all. Yeah,
1: was it in the 70s, though? I think yes. it was in the 70s, yeah, but Paul it wasn't Volker 71. Was yeah,
2: correct. you're right. Yeah. Um, But I I believe that you're right in that there's been a lot of bandwidth for a lot of scientific advances during, you know, a lot of the, you know, 15, 16, 1700s. I feel like it wouldn't be difficult to argue that the scientific advances of the past, I guess, now 50 years since 1971 have in many ways built upon that, but have far outstriped that. So I don't know if it's necessarily fair to say scientific advances
1: come from sound money policy. So the thing that sound money does to society is it allows us to plan much further into the future than we would be able to normally because it creates a level of stability that enables the average human being to say, I know that this money will have value this far out into the future. It gives you a very accurate way to depict how long that money will protect you. Not untrue. And when you do that, it actually, in my opinion, unlocks the human brain to an extent where you can begin to say, well, now that I know I'm secure for the next 10, 20, 30 years, I can focus on something that I'm very passionate about. And throughout history, we've seen when the average human being is unlocked to that capacity where they can focus on the thing that makes them you know, really get up and want to go in the morning, they typically deliver the best results. They typically deliver breakthroughs. And that's why I think that sound money is so important because... If you deliver sound money to the entire world, now you're unlocking the creative process and the ingenuity of billions of people. Right now we live... I will I will give it to you. We've had some technological advancements, but most of the technological advancements that we have today are because we are robbing from the future. We're actually pulling value from the future and giving it to ourselves now. And we've been doing that since 1971 and we've run out we can't borrow any more time from the future.
2: So I feel like that's interesting because I would I very respectfully I would completely disagree. I think the thing that makes people there the most creative, the most able to unlock the potential is an absolute lack of security. Is a is a need to be driven to go out and create more and do more and earn more and contribute more. And I feel like you see that all the time in in you know pick your favorite line of work is if you if you know that I need to you know, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, I need to invent the new what the the next new thing. And we gotta we have I have this idea, and we're gonna we're gonna go from HotOrNot.com for Harvard dorm room people <laughs> to now it's a multi billion dollar company. Otherwise, they're gonna kick me out of school, and I'm gonna be the laughing stock, and I'm gonna have all this debt and no college degree and whatever. I feel like the the lack of security is what really gets people driven. I feel like if I'm well, I if I had a, security for the next thirty years. I'd just, you know, I'd hang out and drink more cocktails and keep watching the Steelers lose and not really think about it too well, much.
0: Well, I think, I think to a point, because I mean, going back to what I was talking about back in medieval Europe, you had the haves and the have-nots. The wealth inequality was so great that you either had a castle and servants and you know Downton Abbey to style, or you were a you know you were a, a peasant and you had nothing, and it, you, there was no innovation coming out of the peasants. You know, you you had innovations happening, but it came from the rich and powerful because the the other, everybody else was just struggling to survive. Um, I think, to an extent, maybe you is interesting point you made. I haven't really thought about it too much, but if you look at the most successful people in our current age, a lot of them were very were were more on uh, on Dennis's side, where where they had their parents had money. Maybe they weren't like super rich but Elon Musk's dad was owned an emerald mine in South Africa like he had money um Phil Knight's dad was a sports reporter here in Portland and had plenty of money when Phil Knight needed $5,000 to go start his first shoe dad cut the check without and $5,000 in the you know the 70s is a lot more than $5,000 but he, he had he had family to help him out um You go, you look at, I mean, Bill Gates had, was able to have access to computers at a young age because of his family situation at the time. Um, it's, it's not people who were not well off. It was, and, and, you know, maybe upper middle class, but it was not people that, that were, struggling who so is made it,
2: these is it that that you are financially able or is it that the money that your parents have a prior generation before buys you the resources over and above what the next individual has
0: you don't have to worry about your to to be creative you don't have to worry about your your surroundings you don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from or where you're going to live or those sorts of things and a lot of that happens
2: from your parents so I, you just, you named three people who came from just decent, off the top of my head, very he, good financial situations. One who was not. I don't think Bill, I think Bill Gates was more of a right place, right time kind of person. I don't think his parents well, came from this fabulous wealth, like the level of, and Mark I'm Zuckerberg saying it's not, Elon it's Musk's. not, I mean, it's it, not millionaires, but it's, it's comfort.
1: We, we, we definitely have stories and we know of people that have come from, very difficult and hard situations, and, and 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 the people that overcome those sorts of difficulties tend to be some of the most successful. Uh, I mean, look at what happened with Oprah, and for in- for instance, that she just had all of these horrible things happen to her, and she overcame that, and now obviously, you know, household name, right? You, there mm-hmm. are stories like that, but on average, most people that are in bad situations that grow up in. Um, in a form of economic oppression, not only in the United States, and we're <laughs> being economically oppressed in the United States is like being, you know, in the 1% in some other country. So you, yeah. if you just look at it from a global perspective, trying to escape the reality of living in a country or under an economic regime where the money that you earn is going to be worth much less in the future puts you in a situation where you're just fighting for survival. And that's when the Maslow's hierarchy of needs kicks in. And you basically can't get to that next level on Maslow's hierarchy of needs because you're just down here at the bottom trying to survive. And some people do break out. And I think that we've seen that time and time again. And those tend to be some incredible stories that I think motivate a lot of us to believe that this is possible for anyone. But it's just not realistic when it comes down to the data. Most people... Do not break out of those sorts of situations. And as you said earlier, the average person who has that leg up from a parent, that's a huge difference for most people. I mean, it makes an incredible difference. That's why most parents struggle and try so hard to make sure that their kids do have that leg up because they know that if you have that leg up, it increases your chances exponentially of hitting the next level and doing something truly incredible with your life.
0: Yeah. Going back to sound money, but this this is... <laughs> so this is another thing. I was listening to your last podcast um, with uh, with Pete Rizzo, I think. And so I, I don't want to reference that too much because most of our listeners probably um, aren't familiar. But talking about the, the future of, of Bitcoin and if Bitcoin as the sound money, we're talking about kind of in theory, but like in, in practice, I think the goal of a lot of Bitcoiners is to replace the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency <laughs> <It's> that... <laughs>
1: So, I mean, there's mixed opinions. Um, (laughs) If you go on Twitter, you could see pretty much a a large swath of individuals will say they believe that the US dollar is going to be destroyed by Bitcoin. Uh, At times, I've even been someone that supports this idea. But as time has gone on, and as some of the more um, robust technologies around Bitcoin and crypto, and and when I speak about crypto in this instance, I'm, I'm going to speak specifically about stable coins. I don't know of any other project outside of Bitcoin. Or stable coins that has a use case or will go on to be used far into the future. Maybe it has some theory of a use case and maybe some people are trying to use it that way. But for most part, I see a lot of that coming towards the Bitcoin ecosystem. I could get into that. Maybe that ruffle a few feathers saying, I don't (laughs) think that all the cryptos will survive, but we can get into that on another episode. When it comes down to it though, because of the way this technology is created, it allows anyone all over the world to have access. For the first time ever, in your entire life and in human history, you can choose the money that you want to use. So most people have been given this opportunity to use Bitcoin as a form of money. And the, the predominant use case for Bitcoin at this point is to use it as a store of value. And as I would say- almost Or I would like say
0: speculative a, asset.
1: A speculative store of value is a nascent form of a store of value so that- not only is you storing your value, but it's going to increase significantly over time because you're an an early adopter. It would be like if gold... Imagine it's like if if gold itself got dropped on the planet and there was everything else around it, all the other money was crap, was total garbage. And the the early people that realized gold was going to be valuable would start buying it and get a significant amount of uh, appreciation in the, the underlying cost that it took to buy the item itself. That's basically what's happening with Bitcoin. It got dropped on the planet... And whoever figures out about it first gets the first opportunity to dive in and to buy this incredible store of value, this incredible money. So yes, it will go up in value. Typically, you know, sound money doesn't fluctuate in value too much. So it's more of a recognition that it's going to be a stable form of. A stable asset, most people would say, in the future. So but, that that's
2: but, also a fair question. I'd be curious about is it was it obviously there was no you know ship from the heavens that dropped this thing called Bitcoin down on us, but it, it where is a is it a physical thing? Can I hold a Bitcoin or do I do I just does it exist on a computer? And I, I, I how are there only twenty one million of them?
1: Bitcoin does this in yeah, Bitcoin is a great question. Bitcoin does this incredible thing where it actually eliminates the physical nature of money. And that's a good thing. Everything that around you, everything that you know of in the last 20 years has been digitized. We've been digitizing videos. We've been digitizing photos. Everything has been getting digitized. And they're trying to digitize you know, everything now going to VR and these virtual reality worlds, mm-hmm. right? But now we have fully digitized money. So we've taken away this drawback of money, which is the physical aspect. Some people are like, well, I want to touch it. I want to feel it. Touching and feeling it is a drawback. Not only can I now transmit my money all over the planet, virtually for free and instantly, I can also store it for free and in a very, very small space. Like, you know, you want to you store $100,000 worth of gold at your house? I mean, not only are you going to have to buy a $10,000 safe, you're going to probably have to get some insurance on it. And you're going to have to... Uh, it's going to take up a significant amount of room. Whereas I can store billions of dollars of Bitcoin at my home for free and take drive. up and take up no space yeah, exactly yeah. yeah so so the taking away the physical nature of money is a good thing I know that it's a difficult thing for a lot of people to grasp but really when is the last time you got paid in you know physical cash yeah like when yeah. was the last time someone handed you two thousand yeah. dollars physical currency f- hasn't really physical been a thing for
2: twenty years thirty years so this well, is so, a,
1: so this is a good thing you're essentially getting all the benefits of gold and all the benefits of digital money
0: at the same time so it, just to kind of explain a little bit further it's a distributed ledger so it's not any there are no coins that you put on a thumb drive there's no file that you have that says i have this many bitcoins it's you have a you there's this, a ledger that's held by everyone everyone you know thousands tens of thousands i don't know how Anyone many, who wants how many to. anybody who wants to holds this ledger and that ledger and that ledger you know says nick owns 0.1 Bitcoin. Come on, you could have given me yeah. one. It's <laughs> You didn't even give him a whole coin. Man. Whole Nick owns 10,000 Bitcoin. Yes. And through cryptography, that same transaction is added on every ledger around the world. All of, all all of those individual ledgers all say the exact same thing that Nick owns 10,000 Bitcoin. And so if you want to spend that, you then add your entry to the ledger that says Nick gives Dennis one bitcoin and then as that gets included in that ledger now you can go back and say well nick had one 100 bitcoin or 10000 bitcoin and then he he gave one to dennis so now dennis has one and nick has you know 9999 <laughs> so, bitcoin Mr. finance mba from you. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm doing this stuff Pay a lot online. Of money for that education. <laughs> right.
2: it came
1: in handy finally
0: i'm making numbers up on the fly so so it's not there's nothing that said uh, like you don't ever hold those 9999 bitcoin it's just it's in the distributed ledger that says okay this is you own this mm-hmm. and he owns one and so you take you take your wallet and you add and subtract all of the different transactions over time and that's how many you you have at the end
2: and so when and i, I like- mine for bitcoin I, I then get to go on and say, I found one and put it on the ledger or what, how is it to that I've found one?
0: Yeah. So if you, if you mine Bitcoin and you find a block, what you do is you take one megabyte worth of transactions, which that, that you would have had been broadcast and, and you take those one, you add that to the ledger plus, was it five now? What's the, what's the 12 and a half? Oh, 6.25 right now. Six point two five. It's so and you get and plus Nick gets plus six point two five Bitcoin. So every block nice. that's found adds six point two five Bitcoin. And then every hundred thousand blocks, I forget ten thousand.
1: Oh yeah. One, so 1, 000, I don't remember four, the number, but it's yeah, it gets cut in half. It, it gets four, cut roughly in, it gets, every four years. Roughly
0: every four years. So every a block is found roughly every ten minutes. So every four years, whatever that math ends up being, uh, the, the block reward gets cut in half. So we're doing so 900
1: Bitcoin a day right now is
0: how much is mined. Right. And so eventually in the year, probably I think it's what 2140. That's it. Yep. Um, the last Bitcoin will be mined. And at that point, the block rewards are going to be minor fractions of a, of a Bitcoin. When it started, it was at 50, then it went to 25, then 12 and a half now, 6.25.
2: Where does one find a block?
0: So it is is a cryptography system. Um, are you familiar with hashes? I'm not. No. Okay. So basically you can take, you run this complicated thing on your, on your computer, this calculated algorithm. And it's, it's the same way that they store passwords basically where you can, where it's, it's a one directional algorithm. You know, you take two plus two equals four. You can also say four equals two plus two, but the, these cryptographic algorithms only go one direction. You can say two plus two equals four. And I can check that four equals my equals four. But I can't take four and reverse engineer that into two plus two. I don't know exactly how that works, but it, that's that's
1: to keep it like really simple, just because the average yeah, person I'm, like, I'm breaking that. You're gonna give way him like the, the like cryptography 101. and like that. <laughs> sorry. I, I, if people want to learn about that, they should go dive deep into it because I personally even it's like it's it's way over my head sometimes. I mean the, the you get math the right, and the cryptography you get the right answer. behind so this. Yeah, you, but you the,
0: run this algorithm a, as many times as you possibly can. If you get the right answer which you can't go backwards, you can only go forward. So if you happen to get guess the right answer, you win the block.
1: Yeah. Cool, basically. So this is just a giant game of guessing. Like yeah. there's like billions or trillions of guesses occurring all day long in order to ensure that you basically find that block and get that reward. But th- there was something though um, really important that we, could, we did kind of skip over earlier that I, I wanted to touch on because I think it's really important, especially for people that would be listening. And it's this idea that Bitcoin will replace the dollar. I don't see Bitcoin as a direct threat to the dollar in the near term. Oh, I do. I see it as a direct threat <laughs> to being a store of value. So all the things out there like gold, for instance, which I don't think it's going to eliminate gold. I don't think it's going to eliminate silver. But when you go into this inflationary event that we're occurring right now and into the future, more people are going to end up choosing Bitcoin. So the I think the future value... That is created through inflation will be distributed through Bitcoin stronger than all these other forms of you know sound money that are available to human beings today. But when it comes to Bitcoin versus the dollar, there's this really interesting thing that's going to happen, which is that because of the permissionless aspect of this money. So permissionless basically means you don't have to ask permission, just like with cash. I can hand you $100 right now and no one could stop me. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Bitcoin. I can... Send one Bitcoin to anyone on the planet and no one can stop that transaction from occurring. The the same thing is about to and is occurring with stable coins. So a stable coin is a one-to-one peg of uh, US dollar to basically a cryptocurrency, right? And one of those is there's Tether, there's USDC, there's there's a bunch of them out there that are available, different types of products. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of them, right? What's going to happen as people figure out and wake up to the reality that, oh, I don't have to store my value in my local fiat, which is a very big problem in a lot of different countries. For instance, in Turkey right now, the lira is just falling off a cliff. And if you were to tell someone, hey, you can take all your lira and convert it into US dollars, they're probably going to do that. Mm-hmm. So as this technology strengthens and broadens across the globe, is it is actually, in my opinion, going to push the dollar across the globe as well. So in the near term, the next 10, 20, 30 years... I believe you will see a very strong increase in the usage and the demand of the dollar and the availability of the dollar to people all across the planet. And then, and then Bitcoin and that world will collide, right? So you'll so, see the dollar go up and people will realize, oh, what's this thing that I always see tradable for dollars that's always going up over the long term compared to my stable coin dollar? Maybe I should buy some of that for my savings account.
0: So without, without uh, getting too deep. To opening of the can of worms, um, I think there's a there's a problem with stable coins in that you're essentially decentralizing the money printer. So instead of the Fed being able to print your money, you're now looking at everybody who owns a stable coin can now print that money. And
1: yeah, that's a short term problem. So that's something that I think that will be fixed. I I think that Gary Gensler from the SEC is going to come in very strongly and regulate the stablecoin market. And that's going to bring a lot of protection and a lot of, uh, I think, trust into the marketplace for using these. Because I I I do agree that it could be potentially a very big problem where people could essentially just... And people have made this claim that companies like Tether, which may or may not have done this in the past. Some people have made the claim that they have, have... printed more tether than they have in reserves for us dollars and that that is the
0: can of worms i was trying not to open but um tether uh, it's ideally if you were to have a stable coin you would need to have a one-to-one reserve of us dollars right which means for every usdt that's printed you would need to have one usd in a bank somewhere yep what i think some cryptocurrencies have done and this is the theory with with um tether in particular which is the biggest stable coin is they are using crypto as their as their reserves and not actual us dollars so they're holding bitcoin or ethereum or polka dot or whatever as they're printing usdt and i am i'm not convinced they have all that money in the bank in USD. A lot in of people U, in USD. not convinced. Yeah. And so... But that's
1: why I hold my money in Bitcoin and not in <laughs> these stable coins because I think there's right. a short period where we will see potentially that something could come out. Uh, I think that there's going to be more regulation. I think the SEC is going to step in. Gary Gensler has made it very evident that he plans to make some moves. And I think that that's going to be one of the things that they go after is not only this the stable They'll coin market, to. but there's other aspects. But the one thing that they have not, Gary Gensler t- actually taught about Bitcoin at MIT, he understands Bitcoin really well, and multiple times he has reaffirmed that Bitcoin is not a security, and that he does not plan to come in to regulate it as such. So that's a, that'll be
2: an interesting, again, find kind of from a public policy perspective. That's the stated opinion of uh, of a of somebody at the SEC. So we we're, we kind of understand where they're at. What does what does Congress think? Is there a point next year's? Is there a point in five or ten years at which somebody on the right or the left tries to make an issue out of? The dollar is, you know, drastically continuing to decrease in value. There's a number of other assets, real estate investments we talked about on this uh, earlier on the episode. And now there's this other thing that is highly speculative at the moment, highly volatile, but could compete with the dollar as a store of value. Is there anybody in Congress who's kind of made comments who says we need to either regulate this or shut this down or incorporate sure. this more into, you know, the legislative process?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, there's people from, um, uh, multiple uh, offices who have made attempts to regulate Bitcoin. I mean, this is the thing that most people don't realize is in this industry, we already have, I believe thousands of pages of regulation at this point for the crypto industry. So it's not like we're living in some wild, wild West unregulated industry any longer. That's, that's a far for far and away from that. But there are various members of Congress who see Bitcoin as a potential threat One in particular is Brad Sherman down in California's 30th district. And that's why myself and many other Bitcoiners are working very hard, very tirelessly to replace him uh, with Erica Rhodes, who is a candidate running there, who's also a Democrat. I mean, you have jungle primaries in California. So he's living in a strong Democrat stronghold. So you have to run as a Democrat in order to win. And there's a real strong chance that she has an opportunity to take him out purely on this one issue alone. Obviously, there are other things, other voters that will get her across the finish line. But that's why I think people are discounting the political movement for Bitcoin significantly in this country. I think though, you're going to see a strong uprise in the political movement. We've already seen very strong movements by the various players in the industry. CEOs of the different exchanges are not happy with what's going on. And you have multiple super PACs forming to be able to push back and a lot of money that's going about to be dumped into some of these races to make sure that guys like Brad Sherman either stay quiet or get removed from office.
0: Uh, Ted Cruz has made some positive statements about Bitcoin. He's also was trying to get rid of that. The, the thing you are talking about in the, in in the infrastructure bill, I'm not sure if he was, he was, uh, successful or not. I don't, I did not, quite up to speed on that mm-hmm. um hillary clinton has made some statements <laughs> talking about the dangers of bitcoin and so it, it seems to me i don't know it, it hasn't quite formed on party lines just yet but it seems to be there there are republicans who are more pro bitcoin pro cryptocurrency sure. and some democrats who are
1: I against think that, it. i think that republicans were definitely the first ones to jump on the bitcoin bandwagon if you want to call it that I definitely think some of them are strongly pro-Bitcoin at this point. I don't think it's a bandwagon thing anymore. You have Senator Cynthia Lummis, Ted Cruz, uh, a couple other senators. Oddly enough, Ron Wyden is coming out as someone who's Hmm. been helping to protect and support Bitcoin. I don't know if he directly likes Bitcoin or if he just thinks this is the right thing to do. Not exactly sure, but I've been happy to see him make moves in the in the right direction, which is an interesting thing for me to be uh, to be pumped up about. Some of the things that are politically happening in Oregon. Senator
2: from New York, there's a yeah. lot of finance there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so a joke for our uh, listeners. He's yeah, not actually from New York, he doesn't represent. He does. New York. He does. He does live there, but <laughs> he, he lives not, there. Yeah. he has a house in New York.
1: But but we have seen. I think this is the thing about Bitcoin is the game theory always seems to play out. So when one side moves in the direction of saying, I'm going to be pro-Bitcoin, then the other side says, well, I better keep up on this issue. Otherwise, I'm going to miss out. And we recently saw 10 members of the Democratic Party write a letter to Nancy Pelosi in regards to the infrastructure bill and the amendment showing their uh, dissatisfaction with the way it was written. And some of the members of that letter writing also joined together in a bipartisan effort to write the Keep Innovation in America Act, which would remove... Uh, Or or change the the language around the broker definition, which we we talked about much earlier in the episode, was what they're trying to do with this amendment is to label miners, node operators, wallet providers, software developers as brokers, which would mean that they have to report KYC AML information, which I'm fine if you want to report KYC information, but they don't have that information. They can't report it. So under the third party doctrine, if you get that information, you have to be able to transmit it to the IRS, to the government. When you're mining, or excuse me, when you're sending a Bitcoin transaction, you're not providing the information like your personal information. Right. briefly,
2: like we- KYC is know your customer, and AML is anti money laundering. In case yeah. not everybody is Jim Cramer yeah.
1: listening. Yeah. <laughs> yes,
0: and but like we discussed earlier, the way that you find a block is you you cr- you run this algorithm. It creates you find the right answer. And you then reward yourself with 6.25 Bitcoin. Uh, in order to do that, you don't have to tell anybody anything about yourself. So you, where 6.25 Bitcoin right now is worth, you know. $400,000. Right. So that would definitely hits any threshold you're talking about for for money laundering or, you know, whatever. You just created $400,000 out of thin air and... Sure. You, 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 but if you're, if but you, you're also if a business. Your,
1: that's income. That's considered income. So you would be reporting that to the IRS automatically. That's not something that, you know, sure. if, if you if you pay me $5,000 to do a job at your house, I still have to report on that in- as income, right? right? It's the right. same concept. Like, and also for those of you that are, you know, newer to this idea of Bitcoin that might be listening is that the, when it comes to Bitcoin itself, the ledger is completely public. Like everybody can see every transaction. So there's not really, if you, if you get into the situation where you're thinking like, Oh, I can go and anonymously transmit money all over the globe. It's not possible. So not with Bitcoin. It's yeah, it's not, this (laughs) isn't something that I think people are like needing to even worry about. And all the players that are involved are, are reporting. And on average, the, the U.S. dollar is more of a mechanism for money laundering than Bitcoin ever has or ever well, will be. To, to
0: be fair, the wallets are public, but who owns the wallets? Not necessarily. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty we,
1: easy to narrow it down to trace it down. Who owns them? Once you sure, once you once get once we, the habit of using them what, regularly. What we were
0: what well, once you, yeah there there are ways to figure it out. But like what we were talking about just before the podcast is the the creator of Bitcoin Satoshi Nakamoto um, owns hundreds thousands of Bitcoin. I'm not sure. He has a million a million Bitcoin. No, it's not a million because it's it's about five percent of the. Well, I guess that would be a million, wouldn't it? So never mind. Sorry, me and my math is uh, not
2: not serving
0: me well today. Got to go, go back for the
1: and... the extra classes. Got to yeah. catch up oh on my the finance gosh, classes. my
0: my thinking on my feet is not exactly what I'm good at right now. Um, but no one knows who he is. You, you you can see Satoshi's wallets, you can see that he has a million Bitcoin, mm-hmm. but as far as the human being who is behind that address, nobody really knows. Yeah. And it's that's a a, if you if you really want listeners, viewers, if you want to get down a rabbit hole, look up Satoshi Nakamoto and try to look at all the conspiracy theories around his <laughs> yeah, identity. There's some fun the, ones out there. The guy who owns a million Bitcoin at fifty thousand bucks a pop, uh is anonymous.
1: So, so one of the things, though, when it comes to that, that probably a lot of people, that would concern them thinking that there's this guy that, you know, may or may not have a million Bitcoin, access to a million Bitcoin. I think it's, it's been pretty well believed at this point that he's not coming back, that he's either dead or he burned his keys because mm-hmm. the incentive around holding a million Bitcoin would be too strong for any you know individual human being to be able to resist. And so Well when it also comes-
0: because it's because it's it's public, the minute he spends any of those, you're gonna yeah. just affect the entire market because all of a sudden it means that you have a million more Bitcoin that are Available, so
1: but there's also a, a benefit to the fact that he is non-existent, and that's that he cannot have undue influence over Bitcoin itself. One of the one of the best things about Bitcoin is its decentralized nature. There's no leader; no one has control. We're all equal participants in this network, and b- you can see the difference between that and a lot of the other cryptos out there that do have very predominant leaders who control and influence the, the fiscal, monetary policy, and development direction of those cryptocurrencies, whereas with Bitcoin, it's the people's money. We're all ha- we're all equal
2: participants. Decentralized and no leader, and anybody can get in. It sounds like the MCRP. If I'm not <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I could keep talking about this forever, but we are just about out of time.
0: So uh, I didn't really give you a heads up on this. I apologize, but one of the things we like to do at the end of our episodes is ask our guests. Um, well, normally we ask who, who their favorite Republican is, but um, I don't know. We can probably broaden that up if you want to say who we, who is your favorite politician. Do you have a favorite politician?
1: Yeah, um, I have a few, but they're not for the reasons most people think. Um, you know, and this is a tough subject Ted, for me. Ted Cruz for. Uh, <laughs> my being favorite politicians Bitcoin. right now are anybody that's a really big uh, Bitcoin proponent. So if you want to earn my vote, I'm a single issue voter. Be super pro Bitcoin. Right. Jimbo's
2: a politician. He just yeah. did a whole podcast well, about right. it. Yeah, he's your like, favorite politician.
1: Yeah. He's, he's on the top of the list right now. <laughs> he's on the top of the list. <laughs> So, I mean, if um, that's how it is. So, I'm, I'm a big proponent of Bitcoiners as a single-issue voter block. I think that will potentially be one of the most powerful, influential, and wealthiest single-issue voter blocks in recent American, if not all American history, because Bitcoiners have a lot of money and mm-hmm. we're extremely economically and morally incentivized to pr- protect and to push Bitcoin forward. So when Bitcoin goes from 50000 to $5 million per coin, there's going to be a lot of efforts to make sure that nobody ever messes with it. And I think that's when you're really going to see things like this country completely change, which to some extent does have a decentralized government. It's probably one mm-hmm. of the most decentralized forms of government, even though it's become less decentralized as time has gone on. Yeah. And that's when you really see the breakdown, right? As you get away from that decentralization model. But I think that we will, to some degree, see many people become more pro-bitcoin you already have i think we're at five senators who have been working to defend bitcoin and then we have now we have 10 democrats in the house and i think we're at like 10 to 15 republicans in the house that are like either behind the scenes protecting bitcoin or openly protecting bitcoin so there's going to be an inflection point where it's like okay once even five percent of congress is pro-bitcoin i mean it's it's pretty much game over for enacting negative legislation. Like we Mm -hmm. can block anything we need to block. And then it's just a a window of opportunity. It's a time where it's like, okay, we go from 5% and then we go to 10%. And then it's now we're making legislation. That's like, Oh, we'll give tax breaks to Bitcoiners. If they stay in the United States, we'll give tax breaks. If you mine here in the United States. And I think that that's the sort of legislation you'll see. It'll go away from, you won't be pro or anti Bitcoin because eventually being anti Bitcoin will be political suicide. You will have a policy paper on what you think mm-hmm. we should do with Bitcoin. No is, no one's pro or anti the internet. No one's pro or anti the economy. They have a policy where they believe we should head a certain direction on how we treat this, you know, the internet technology or how we treat the economy. That's so true. soon enough, it's like giving Bitcoin a thumbs up is not going to be good enough. You're going to have to huddle Bitcoin. You're going to have to have <laughs> a legislation that you are crafting to protect Bitcoin and to, protect, to promote Bitcoin. Uh, so, and then eventually we'll all be Bitcoiners and it'll just be one big happy family. Got Perfect it. way of saying why James is your favorite
2: politician. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. <laughs> well, Dennis,
1: thanks again for coming on the show.
2: Really it. appreciate it. And see you
0: again. Listeners, we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.